Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Please open your Bible back up to Matthew 28, page 1000 in the English Bible. And we, we actually start there, but we're going to launch off and go through different parts of the Bible. Uh, now, we believe at Grace Church that the Bible is God's living word. It is infallible and inerrant. It has no mistakes. God breathed it out through human authors. So our normal method of teaching the Bible is not to sort of pick and choose uh, things that we want to talk about, but actually to take whole books or sections of books of the Bible and preach through them bit by bit so we hear what God's word has to say and it's a method that's known as expository preaching expository expounding the text but every so often we actually pause from that and look at a topic uh, because we need to look at something together as a church and I'm really delighted to share that two women have come to faith in Jesus Christ at Grace Church and asked to be baptized it's wonderful news so in two weeks' time, on the 9th of June, we will incorporate baptisms into our Sunday service. We're going to do it outside, okay? We're not going to try and do it in here, but uh, we're, going to, we're borrowing a baptismal pool. We'll fill it with water. Don't worry, ladies, it'll be warm water, and uh, we'll be uh, dunking them uh, during the service. Now, two things to note from this. One, it would be a great day to bring guests a great day to bring guests. If you have friends or family or neighbours who are curious about church, then that would be a good day. Because on that day, we'll, be, we'll have a sermon that will explain the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and they'll have opportunity to interact with us as a church. Also, secondly, it may be that you yourself uh, should be baptised. And if that's something that comes to your mind during this service or you've been thinking about it, then would you join me afterwards for a time of q and I'll be going out of this side door here and round to the side where the children are meeting at the moment and I'll just be in there for a while if anyone wants to come and chat raise questions we'll be in I'll be in there so baptismal service two weeks from today so we thought this was a good opportunity to teach about the meaning of baptism and also while we're at it to teach about the meaning of the Lord's Supper these are the two signs of the new covenant. I'll explain what a covenant is a bit later. The new covenant people of God have two signs given to them by Jesus. The first is the, the sign that shows your entry into the, the people of God, and it's, it's baptism. That sh that's an entry sign. And the second is a continuation sign. We take the Lord's Supper in this church monthly to show that we're continuing in the people of God. So baptism is at the start of your journey with Jesus and the Lord's Supper is a continuation. Now, some people call them sacraments. Some people call them ordinances. Um, both words are fine. We're going to refer to them as signs today. So today, uh, what's the meaning of baptism? And I'm going to use this widget to click through. I've got quite a few slides. But I've got most of the Bible references up here, so you won't have to turn too much. So can I skip on? 
Thank you. Uh, what is baptism? Now, why on earth would anyone do this? Allow yourself to be plunged, fully clothed, underwater, fully immersed, held under for a short period of time, and then lifted out again. All of this in full view of a watching public. Why do Christians do this? Is it more evidence of the stupidity of their ideas? Some say yes. I want to answer that question, why baptism, with these four points. Firstly, the importance of baptism. Secondly, the meaning of baptism. Thirdly, the debate over baptism. And fourthly, the opportunity for baptism. So the importance, the meaning, the debate, and the opportunity for baptism. So firstly, the importance of baptism. We move to um, Matthew 28, the, 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 verse that, the verses that Laura just read. And this, this section is, is often called the Great Commission. In fact, in our church Bible, it has that heading put in there in bold. The Great, the great Commission. This is a final commission. It's basically the last recorded words of Jesus prior to his ascension to, to heaven. Now, in the ancient world, last words of an important person carried great weight. People would, would listen for the last words and they would keep the last words and they would remember them and repeat them, especially over a significant person. The last words were important and they are quite important in our culture too. And so these are the last words on earth of Jesus Christ. They are his marching orders to his followers. So what does he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What does Jesus say here? Firstly, how much authority does he have? All authority in heaven and on earth. It's comprehensive. On a scale of one to a hundred, how much authority does Jesus have? One hundred. By his, his life's work, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, God the Father has given him all authority. He's been appointed with power to be the Messiah. That's God's special king over the whole universe. Jesus now has all authority. And what does he do with his authority? What command does he now give? Notice what he says. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. What's the command? Now, in the Greek language, only one word in that sentence is an imperative. That means a command. And it's the word, make disciples. So the command that Jesus gives with all his authority is to make disciples. A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus. Make disciples. The whole sentence revolves around this, this single command. Make disciples. And how do you do it? Going to all the world. Baptizing and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So Christians are to go into every corner of the earth. But they mustn't just go but they are to make disciples of everyone. A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus. And notice again what Jesus expects his followers to do as they make disciples. Going, baptize, and teach. So none of these three things, going, baptizing, and teaching, is optional. In this epic moment, 
Jesus is giving his final instructions. He impresses on them the Father has given him ultimate authority, and this is what they must do. Go, baptize, and teach. Now, that must mean that baptism is essential. It's not an optional thing for the Christian church. We don't take or leave baptism. It is essential. Therefore, it's important. Now, what does it mean? Now, notice the disciples here don't start scratching their heads and saying, well, I know what he means by go and teach, but I haven't got a clue about baptism. Have you ever heard of it? What's that? No, they know what, they know what baptism means. They know what to do. The word that's used for, we translate baptize, was actually used in the culture for other things. So if you wanted to dye your cloth, dye some clothes that had faded, you want to dip, you, you dip and immerse them in the dye, it's the same word that's used, baptizo. No religious connotations, just immersing and lifting out again. That much was obvious, just from the language. And also, your various kinds of religious washings or baptisms that were known in Jewish culture and in the nations around. So this idea of baptizing is not a new invention to Jesus. Everybody had an idea of what baptism was about. Even closer to home, remember the Lord Jesus' cousin. His name was John. But what do we usually know him as? John the, John the Baptist. His work, his life's work, was to call people to repent, which means to turn, wholehearted turning from their old way of life, and to be baptized. And John worked out in the wilderness near a big river, which was quite handy, given what his job was. So even though Jesus himself never baptized anyone, the disciples knew what he was talking about when he gave this command. And remember that Jesus himself had been baptized by John. So far, so good. They understand that baptism involves dunking someone in water. And they now know that they're going to baptize people into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we now refer to as the Trinity, the three persons in one God. And that that baptism into the threefold name of God is crucial to the future mission of the church. Great. Baptism is important. But what does it actually represent? I want to show you in the second point here. Uh, the meaning of baptism, that it is a picture of the gospel. Baptism is a picture, uh, a sign representing the good news. So onto the meaning of baptism. Now, we shouldn't just assume that Christian baptism means just the same as other baptisms in the ancient world. For a start, New Testament baptism is one time and it is passive. You allow yourself to be baptized by someone else and you trust that they're going to lift you up out of the water. In the ancient world, baptisms were often frequent and people could baptize themselves. Now also note that the Bible is not a textbook. You know, the Bible is many things, but it's a library, but it's not a textbook. So you can't just look up the word baptism and find an article on it between the word bap and balm cake. We have to go and look in a few places, and that's what we're going to do today. Christian baptism is a sign that is rich in meaning. It means more than one thing. And so here I'm going to share three things that baptism means. Firstly, cleansing. Here's a text from Acts chapter 22, verse 16. And this is uh, the Apostle Paul talking about his conversion experience. And this is what a man called Ananias said to him. Now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, 
calling on his name, Jesus' name. So this man called Ananias came to Paul. At that time, he was called Saul. And he explained the good news to him about Jesus. And in this verse, Paul has understood and he's repented and he's turned to Jesus and asked to be forgiven. And Ananias says, okay, now that you get it, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. And that is quite typical of the baptisms that we read about in the book of Acts. Somebody accepts Christ, trusts Christ, understands the gospel, makes a a, a clear profession of faith, and pretty soon after, they get baptized. Now, in some churches um, in in our country and around the world, you have to wait years and years to be baptized. You have to kind of go through a lot of tests to see if your faith is genuine. But in the New Testament, baptism seems to follow quite quickly uh, after a person trusts Jesus and prays a sinner's prayer. Now, we are wise to assess if their profession of faith seems genuine, but we don't have to put them through a lot of tests if the baptism can follow quite quickly. Notice what Ananias refers to in this text. It rep- baptism represents cleansing, washing away your sins. The idea that you can be made clean and pure and that your sins will be washed away. Now, the water itself doesn't do that in some kind of magic way. We know from the, the whole of the New Testament that it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses people. But baptism is a picture of a spiritual reality, a picture of being washed clean of being cleansed from sin because of Jesus death on the cross we can have a fresh start no matter what you've done no matter what you've thought no matter what you've said you can have a fresh start your record can be wiped clean your sins can be taken as far away as they can go your guilt can be paid for. Your shame can be removed. What a thought. What wonderful news that is. In the film Dark Knight Rises, one of the Batman films, Anne Hathaway plays Selina Kyle, a woman with a past. She has stolen, she's lied, she's betrayed people. She has an extensive criminal record. She's a con artist and she wants her record wiped clean. She wants a fresh start. And she hears about a piece of software called Clean Slate that will remove her record from every database in the world. And she really wants that Clean Slate software. Then she can start afresh, literally be born again. Clean Slate. And maybe there's someone here who wishes that they could wipe the slate clean. Start again. Oh, how you would love to clean up your record. The Christian gospel says it is possible. It is possible. But the radical thing about it is that the gospel, first of all, tells you, you are unable to cleanse yourself. You are unable to cleanse yourself. No amount of scrubbing, and trying harder can take away the stain of your sin. Like Lady Macbeth, who was so guilty she was washing her hands compulsively, but the spot wouldn't come out. We cannot scrub our sin away. The first part of the good news is bad news. You can't do it. We're stuck. But God is not. His grace breaks through, even to the hardest heart. 
He says, you don't have to try harder. You do need to trust harder. You need to trust Jesus who stood in your place, who took the penalty that was due to you, who was made shameful so that you could be honored, who was torn apart so that you could be put back together, who paid the price for all your sins. Because Jesus lived a pure life, you can have his clean slate. Because Jesus died the death that you deserved, you can walk free and be alive. Your sin's taken away. The gospel message then is not do, but done. Accept, trust, rest in Jesus. So therefore I want to take this moment to plead with somebody here to turn to Jesus Christ and trust him. Rest in him. Stop trying to be your own Lord and Savior. You can be washed even today if you trust him in faith. The sign of baptism shows that we have been washed and cleansed of all our sins. Secondly, Jesus Christ gives his people a new life, a new identity. We'll be thinking a lot about this on our teaching day. But here's a quotation from Romans chapter 6. Notice how this talks about the Christian's identity. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now that's very dense, takes a bit of unpacking, but notice what he says here, it's quite startling. He says that if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, then you've also been baptized into his death. And you've been baptized into his resurrection. That's why we plunge people under to show them that they're died, they've died. And we raise them out to show them that they've, been, they've risen to new life. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? Well, here's another reading. I won't put it on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10 says that our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Paul there uses the language of being baptized into Moses. But the Israelites weren't immersed in water. In that place, baptism is a reference to the Exodus experience. The Israelites went through the Red Sea on dry land without being touched by water. And so there, baptism shows us the way that Israel was marked out as belonging to their leader, as identifying with Moses. And that changed their identity. Baptism signals a new identity. And a new identity, a new story about who you are, means a new way of life. Look again at this last sentence here that we too might walk in newness of life. Being a Christian is not about which box you tick on the census form about your religious affiliation. Being a Christian is not defined by church attendance, although Christians should go to church. Being a Christian is not even just about having certain beliefs. No. Those things are important, but we need to see that being a Christian is actually about being given an entirely new identity. You're given a new identity by Jesus. You now belong to him. You bear his name, Christian. 
He's your master, your Lord. You live your life in such a way to please him. You no longer live to please yourself. You no longer love yourself more than anyone else in the world. You're now a lover of God and a lover of other people. Being baptized into the name of Jesus then means that you belong to him. You have a new identity. And this is because of a third thing. I'm moving through quite quickly here. Remember the first um, meaning of the sign is cleansing. The second meaning is a new identity. And the third thing is union with Christ. Again, I'm going to just point you back to this here. Romans 6. Notice how we're united with Jesus here. Don't you know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him. We were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The next verse says this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be reunited with him in a resurrection like his. On to this next uh, verse here. This is from Colossians 2. And again, look for the, the, the language of identification, of, of, of union. In him, that's Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So you, Christian, when you truly trust in Jesus, it's as if you died with Jesus and you've raised with Jesus and your life is now safe with Jesus in heaven. A union, united with him. Now that is hard to grasp, isn't it? It's kind of mind-bending. So let me use an illustration. And I'm going to get in trouble for using this from some of the people because uh, it's about Manchester City. Okay, a few years ago, our oldest son, Will, was caught up with the English Premier League football. His team, Man City, were in with a chance, a slim chance of winning the league for the first time since 1968. A long time. But it was very close, very close. They started the season well, including a devastating victory of 6-1 over their old rivals, Man United. But midway through the season, they started to slip and stumble. It looked like they'd given away the chance for victory once again. And United overtook them and pulled away on points. And then United started to stumble. And City had a few good games. And suddenly they were back in the running and it got tense and dramatic. And it was, but it was too close to call. It all came down to the last game of the season, to the last few minutes of the game. It was nail-biting drama. United thought they'd won. We were in a pub full of City fans. People were crying and starting to go home early and saying, oh, we've lost it again. And in the last minute, when it looked like all was lost, Sergio Aguero scored. They won. And as the final whistle blew, the pub went crazy. People were throwing whole pints of drink into the ceiling. And my young son pulled his shirt off and ran around the pub shouting, we've won, we've won, we've won, we've won. Everybody was saying it, we've won. But had we won anything? We hadn't even kicked a ball. Most of us looked like we needed to do more exercise. All we'd done was watch it on TV. Was it anything to do with us? 
Well, in a way, it was. Because sports fans have some idea of union. They have some idea of being united with their team. The more intense the fan, the more the fan's heart is tied up with the team's success and failure. In the 1930s, they did studies of factory productivity in Newcastle upon Tyne, and they found that if Newcastle won a game midweek, productivity in the factory went up 30% the next day. Way! All, going in, all the Geordies are going in, working hard. Union, we won. They know that in some way, the team represents them. What the team does, they do. When the team loses, they're so sad. They identify with the team. They share in the victories and sorrows. If the team wins, they get swept up into it. Now, that's just sport. It's just football. It's a bunch of people kicking a pigskin around a field, right? <laughs> in a much deeper and a much more profound way, the New Testament says that Christians are swept up into what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. When he died, it was as if you died with him. Your old way of life and its consequences was nailed to the cross. We were buried with him by baptism into death. When our representative died, our old sinful life died with him. So we no longer live that way of life. We are dead to it. If you're a Christian, you don't turn away from your sins because you're trying to earn God's favor. You've already got God's favor. You turn away from your sins because that's not you anymore. It's not you. Be true to who you are. We have a new life. Colossians 2, when he rose from the dead, it was as if you were raised with him too. Your life is now joined to his. And one day you will rise from the dead too, literally, physically. So the meaning of baptism, by the way, this is the longest point, in case you were wondering about uh, how long this sermon's going to go on for. Fourth point's really quick. The meaning of baptism, three, three aspects, cleansing, new identity, union with Christ. That's what it means. So it's a picture of the gospel, a picture of the good news, where we get forgiven for our sins, we get given a new identity, we get joined to Jesus. Now, simply getting into a pool of water and being immersed, coming up for air, doesn't do anything in and of itself. It doesn't do anything. But it represents the gospel. Christians believe that baptism represents entrance into the family. It's a ritual that marks the beginning. So let me ask again, do you truly believe that gospel? Do you truly believe it? Have you turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ alone? Have you decided to follow Jesus, no turning back? Are you living in newness of life? Of course you're imperfect, but are you living in newness of life? then you should be baptized. You must be baptized, if you haven't been already, out of obedience to your Lord. No question. Two caveats. Firstly, it's the responsibility of leaders in the church community to assess the credibility of a person's conversion. Some people very quickly convert and just as quickly leave the faith. To baptize someone like that would be irresponsible. So it's a serious sign to be baptized, serious sign, not, we don't take it lightly. So if you'd like to be baptized, we would love to talk to you, one of our elders would talk to you. But we're not gonna assess your, your theological pedigree, we're just to, to, to assess that it's a credible profession of faith. And secondly, at what age should someone be baptized? What about a young child? 
or an adolescent. Now that is a, is a question that's not directly addressed in the Bible. When a child is still at home and under the authority of his or her parents, they may well be truly converted. But if they request baptism, we need to exercise caution, talk it over with them, with the full involvement of their parents. We have baptized teenagers at the church and God willing, we'll do so again. But if, if uh, families want to talk about that, then please do come and chat. Remember Q&A afterwards. Okay, so far so good. Um, we've talked about the importance of baptism and we've talked about the meaning of it. And, and every Christian denomination in the world agrees that new believers should be baptized. New believers should be baptized. Every Christian denomination except Quakers. That's the nearly universal view. But we don't have agreement about what to do with infants. We don't have agreement about what to do with infants. Now at this point, we could very easily have another two or three hours of lecture going into extensive debate on this question. And you will be relieved to hear we don't have time for that. And I want to apologize if you're a visitor or a skeptical person, this next part of the message is quite in-house. But let me just share some thoughts about um, infant baptism, which is uh, often called pedo-baptism. Pedo, uh, connected with, with children, like pediatrics, is children's infant medicine, children's medicine. Pedo-baptism is the view that we should baptize infants, and credo, Baptism is the, is the view that we should only baptize believers. Peter baptism, credo baptism. Let me uh, look at some of the debate with you just for five minutes, and then we'll wrap up with an opportunity. So uh, I want to share two arguments for infant baptism that I think are quite weak, and one that is strong. You always want to be fair to people who you disagree with. And then I will explain briefly why our leadership is not persuaded that we should baptize infants, but also why at Grace Church we regard this as an open hand issue, not a closed hand issue. I'll explain that in a moment. Two weak arguments. One argument that's sometimes given for baptizing infants is Jesus' special regard for children. Jesus' special regard for children. Matthew 18, disciples came to Jesus and they said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a child little child put him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven whoever receives one such child in my name receives me but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea now, some use this passage to support baptizing children because Jesus says, come to me, you children. But it does not here refer to the act of baptism. In the passage, Jesus is not arguing that faith should be absent, but rather that faith ought to be like that of a child. So the focus is on a person who has faith, but it's childlike faith that is completely trusting and happy to receive now that suggests that there ought to be some conscious faith present in a person being baptized. Second argument that's often used is that there were household baptisms in the New Testament. Whole households got baptized. Acts 10, Cornelius and his household 
are baptized. Acts 16, Lydia and her household are baptized. Acts 18, Crispus and his household were baptized. 1 Corinthians 1, Stephanus and his household were baptized. Okay, here we have whole households being baptized. So the argument goes, surely there must have been some infants. Surely there must have been some infants in those households. Everybody goes in. But the text does not tell us if infants were present in those households. And an argument from silence is always weak. What we do see is that baptism seems to follow a conscious confession of faith. They believed and were baptized. For example, the word, the gospel was preached to the Philippian jailer's whole household. And it says they believed and were baptized. These texts seem to be implying that there's a connection between the head of the household making a profession of faith and baptism of the rest of the family. But it doesn't say that only the, the head of the family professed faith. So there's a, there's a silence there. We don't know from those cases whether there were young infants being baptized. That doesn't answer the question about infants. So those are two weaker arguments. Let me give a strong argument, and this one's going a bit deeper, so uh, fasten your seatbelt. The strong argument, which has a very distinguished pedigree, is that there is a continuity between the Old Testament covenants and the New Testament covenant, the New Covenant. What's a covenant? A covenant is a legal treaty or a legal arrangement that formalizes a relationship. In the ancient world, a covenant was made by a great king with a lesser king and his subjects. And the great king would make conditions and promises based on the covenant. It was a personal thing, but it was also formal and legally binding. And in the Bible, God relates to people through covenants. God relates to people as a great king to subjects. There's a covenant in, in Genesis with the whole of creation. God makes a covenant with Noah for the whole of creation. God makes a covenant with Abraham and promises, makes promises to him and binds him in covenant. God makes a covenant with Israel, Abraham's descendants. That's through Moses, their leader. And in Jesus, we have the new covenant. So we are a covenant people. We're bound to God in a binding, legal, and personal relationship. When we take the Lord's Supper, remember sometimes we read the words of institution that say, this is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, covenants. Now the covenant in the Old Testament contained two distinct elements, a physical one and a spiritual one. The physical element was the promise of a literal land, the promise of a people, the promise of physical descendants, the promise of heirs. There's also spiritual promises. God promised to protect, bless the descendants of Abraham. They would be a blessing to every family on earth. God would be with them, a promise of his presence. And the sign of this old covenant was circumcision. Circumcision. Every male born in Abraham's family was circumcised as an infant. And every male born in the children of Israel as an infant was circumcised. So the sign of the old covenant was circumcision and the, Jewish, the Israelites and then the Jewish people were immensely proud of this distinguishing sign that they had unlike all the other nations. Now what is the sign of the new covenant? Baptism. So the argument is baptism now replaces circumcision. 
Just as a sign was given in the old covenant to infants, so it should now be given to infants in the Christian community. And as I said, this is a good argument with a strong pedigree, uh, and it is a big support for the pedo-baptist position, which is a global belief and a historic belief of the Christian church going back many centuries. But there are problems with it. When a covenant ended in the ancient world, so did the sign that went with it. And when a new covenant started, it didn't carry on the exact state of affairs that went before. It's a new arrangement. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. And we shouldn't assume that this covenant operates just like the old ones did. Covenants don't work like that. And the Old Testament itself distinguished between people who'd just been circumcised in their body and those who'd actually really trusted and believed God and it says been circumcised in their heart. And the letter to the Colossians makes this connection that every true Christian is circumcised in their heart. There seems to be a very strong link in the New Testament between faith, belief, and baptism. All the evidence we have points in the direction of baptism following faith. It doesn't have to be a, an adult, but there should be some conscious, credible trust in Christ. Now, that's a quick five-minute summary of a very complicated debate. You can talk more to me afterwards. And we have a difference of opinions in the church, and we can be, have differences of opinion and still be friends, brothers and sisters, and even uh, members of the same church. What do we do when the Bible is not 100% clear on an important issue? We sometimes talk about the difference between an open-hand issue and a closed-hand one. A closed-hand issue would be the authority and trustworthiness of the Bible. That is closed hand. We, we, we have to hold on to that and, and, and be dogmatic about it. Another closed hand issue would be the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was fully God. Another closed hand issue would be that God is a trinity of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Another closed hand issue would be justification by faith. We're made right with God by faith alone through grace alone. No works of our own contribute to it. Those are all closed hand. But where the Bible is not clear... Rupertus Meldinius famously said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. The Bible is not 100% clear on the question of infant or believer's baptism, so we mustn't be dogmatic about that, and we're not. So we have members of Grace Church who uh, were baptized as infants, and they sincerely believe that is their baptism, and that's fine. We're not pressuring them to get baptized as an adult or a believer. Uh, we've also historically at our church had a difference of views in the leadership. The leadership of our church has included over the years uh, leaders, one or two leaders who believed in infant baptism and others who believed in believers baptism. So uh, if, if, if we can agree to disagree on this, it's not actually a bar to leadership. And the last three churches that I've belonged to, there was a difference of opinion among the elders and it was never a problem. The issue is not so much what you believe on this, but your attitude to open-hand issues. So that's a bit about the debate. Here's the four points again. The importance of baptism, it's very important. The meaning of baptism, cleansing, new identity, union with Christ. The debate over baptism, infant versus believers. And now, finally, and very briefly, an opportunity.
You may have heard this teaching today and you realize now baptism is really important uh, for everyone who believes and follows the Lord Jesus Christ. And it may be that you do trust and follow him, but you've never been baptized and now you realize you should be. And so I would love to talk to you about being baptized on the 9th of June. You don't need to jump through a lot of hoops and answer a theology quiz. We just want to know that you understand the gospel and you've made a credible commitment to follow Jesus. So will you consider it carefully? Come and talk afterwards. Uh, take the opportunity to, to ask questions. And will you also invite guests on the 9th of June? It would be great to join with those two women and maybe others and celebrate their faith and share the gospel with those around us. Let's pray.